If you're a small business owner looking to grow or expand your business, check out OnDeck Business Loans. OnDeck offers business loans online from $5,000 to $500,000, and their simple application process only takes 10 minutes. Unlike banks, they'll give you a decision quickly, and funding is as fast as one day. Get a free consultation with an OnDeck loan advisor. Visit OnDeck.com podcast. This is the Customer Equity Accelerator, a weekly show for marketing executives who need to accelerate customer-centric thinking and digital maturity. I'm your host, Allison Hartsoe of Ambition Data. This show features innovative guests who share quick wins on how to improve your bottom line while creating happier, more valuable customers. Ready to accelerate? Let's go! Welcome everyone. Today's show is about whether customer centricity is actually right for your company. And to help me discuss this topic is Jeff Gardner. Jeff is the marketing manager at Staples and frankly, one of the sharpest thinkers I have run across on this subject. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, Allison. Thanks for the warm introduction. (laughs) Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to join you on today's podcast. Thank you. Now, people, especially of, let's say, my generation, I won't, I won't pull you into this and, and say our generation, but from the time I was a kid, no one was trying to become an analyst when they grew up. If anything, they were going to be a computer programmer, and that was the sexy job of the, of the time. How did you get from uh, wherever you started to this topic of CLV? You know, d- were you dreaming of you know, doing spreadsheets when you were a kid? Yeah, I love the way you frame the question. Um, no, I, I didn't grow up um, like you know wanting to be an Excel guru or anything like that. Um, you know, I'd say that I really learned how to implement customer centricity. Um, you know, very early in my professional career. Um, you know, I was a consultant and I was supporting clients in a range of industries as they were adopting centricity within a division or a business unit. And I kind of just developed that natural, like, lens, if you will, on the business. And then later on, as I started to work in corporate roles, um, I just borrowed those early experiences, um, and they shaped, you know, how I would execute in my role. Um, So I I think I'm very much like anybody else who's kind of come up through the ranks in a functional domain, only, you know, the functional domain that, that I would aspire to would be, you know, customer centricity. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And what a great place to aspire. Now, uh, tell us a little bit more about what your team does or what you specifically do at Staples. My role has recently changed. So, um, you know, I'll start out by saying that, um, you know, the role I had, uh, you know, three months ago was really leading a a small team of four people. And we were implementing customer centricity within um, a business unit that generates, you know, several billion dollars in revenues uh, annually. Um, So in that role, you know, my team and my work streams, they included how do you assimilate, you know, customer segmentation into a marketing process or marketing procedures. And then it was, you know, working with analytics teams to create a customer-centric data model that would allow, you know, functional partners to tap into um, what marketing was doing and to support, you know, new marketing procedures. I also worked, you know, with leadership cross-functionally to identify and implement some simple process changes that, that aligned with the, you know, the vision. And then, um, and then I drafted new reporting that just showed, you know, created more transparency around, um, you know, sources of revenue lift. So it was, it was really, um, 
part analytics, it was part process management, it was part working and, and listening to leadership and, and understanding their views on the business, um, and then and then working with them to um, to make sure that the changes that were happening in marketing could be supported. Uh, in my current role, and this is the one I've had over the last three months, um, you know, I'm working with a team that's defining segmentation in a different way. It actually uh, needs to reflect customer value across three interrelated business units. So the scope has grown and, um, you know, the, the stakes, if you will, are getting a little bit larger. What's so amazing about that story is most people who have worked with customer lifetime value have tinkered with it here and there or maybe have um, applied it in one particular scenario, but very few have taken it all the way through to a successful case within one part of the organization and then the expansion to the rest of the organization. And I think that expansion is definitely a a major flag that says, yes, people have been convinced, people have bought in because that that is the natural move in the curve, the way we outline the customer-centric maturity curve, is you end up with a, a pocketed win and then that win starts to spread out across the organization. And that sounds like indeed what's happening with your work at Staples, which is fantastic. Yeah, I, I would say in our case, it's it's one where um, you can only do so much within one functional domain. Um, things are interrelated, so you, you know you show initial success through um, you know more advanced marketing tactics, and then you can you can only go so far with that, and you need the support of say um, you know a pricing function or a merchandising function, um, and and with their support, you can um, it, it, it helps marketing even be more crisp. So it, it's definitely something where, you know, as you show success, you want to share it, you want to foster collaboration, and you want to help that success take root mm-hmm. elsewhere. Absolutely. So one of the concepts behind customer centricity and customer lifetime value is has has always been that isn't it for everyone? Isn't it, you know, isn't the application, the ability to predict CLV, something that, you know, with a few exceptions, almost everyone can use or do you think it's more like you know you're going to win a gold medal at the olympics and only some people have michael phelps's uh physique and other people are simply not going to be as strong of a competitor or maybe not right for the olympics at all so i have i have to say i love the metaphor i've never heard uh, olympic competition compared to customer centricity so um (laughs) you know I'm, i'm definitely loving that um I'd actually say yes to the first half of the question, mm-hmm. um, and, and basically what I mean by that is, is you know, an Olympic athlete might have to you know, undertake some intensive training to compete at the highest level, um, whereas centricity is, is really it's, it's a simple initiative. Um, it, it projects your most valued customers at some future point in time, and then um, you know, the company has to address you know, what it's going to do to ensure that those cu- those customers are still around when that future date rolls around. So it's, it's definitely not as, as um, advanced or intense, if you will, as Olympic training. Well, that's good. But it does seem that some companies pick it up but don't actually ad- adopt it, or maybe I should say adapt to it, and other companies do. Why is that? I, I think you have to have the right um, situation in, in the right setting. So, you know, in, in my experience, um, both as a consultant and as a practitioner, I'd say that, you know, I, I can kind of 
put the situation into like one of three types. Um, you know, the first type is, is a company who's ascending, right? They're, they're, they're in a high rate of growth. They've got a lot of new customers that are, that are, you know, being acquired. Um, associates are coming on board at a, at a pretty good rate. Procedures and, and, and functional priorities are still fluid. In that scenario, I don't know that customer centricity would really be able to take root. I, th- I think, you know, they might want to adopt it, but there's just so much going on and there's so much that's still kind of in flux mm-hmm. that centricity might be countercultural. Um, a second scenario might be where an organization's in a regulated marketplace or where they're, they're, they have a fixed value you know, associated with a customer. So, you know, something that comes to mind is, is maybe you have a platform and every single customer is going to pay the same amount. Um, in, in that scenario, uh, modeling your customer may not actually translate into um, anything that you can do in the marketplace to generate a higher return, you know, if you will, on a customer basis. Um, so in that type of scenario, I'd say, you know, you, you're probably not going to see a centricity take root. Um, the third scenario is the one, and it's the most typical setting. It's it's really where an organization's competing in an open market. It already has a diverse customer portfolio. It's got stable internal procedures, and and upper management really has a desire to increase um, growth using you know basically organically. It doesn't want to do it through M and A, or it doesn't want to do it through um, you know any other type of financial you know, any other financial means. They, they simply want to acquire more high-valued customers. You know, in that scenario, the third one, that's where um, customer centricity actually has the best opportunity to take root and to return, you know, relatively high dividends. I see. So uh, let me just repeat this back and make sure that I, I got our three areas and maybe we can talk through them a little bit more. What the first type I almost think about as a startup, um, it's an up and coming company that doesn't have a lot to lose. And they're, um, they're able to go after customers, but they they might not have a true sense of who the customer is. They don't have enough history. They're just kind of out there to um, do something new and fresh and you know, maybe customer lifetime value isn't yet their right metric. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, a, a great contemporary example is, um, you know, a company that, that you know, I've had the opportunity to, to work with, um, you know, they're a, uh, a service provider that works in, in conjunction with, you know, like Amazon Web Services, you know, like so hosted data. And in that environment, it's, it's, it's really a land grab. You know, mm-hmm. these companies um, are, are really trying to scale up as quickly as they can because the demand for, for you know, Amazon services is so high. So if they stop to, you know, if more or less they tap the brakes and, and think about customer lifetime value at this point, um, it would really it would really be countercultural to to kind of where they're at in their uh, you know in their organizational kind of model, if you will. Got it. Yeah, I I like that analogy of a land grab because I I do think that creates um, a much different market scenario than than the opposite, which is a, a company that's been successful in spite of itself, uh, which I think was your third version. But let's let's stick with the second one for a, a minute. I, I love the way that you frame things. So I was I was actually <laughs> in my head. I was totally in agreement. See, that's why we great minds think alike, right? <laughs> 
So that um, that second part where you were talking about maybe the complexity of the business is just too great. You, you've got um, government regulation, you've got um, a platform, or you've got maybe artificial barriers that cause people not to be able to move around very easily. Um, I, I, like, I, I don't know if you necessarily think of banking in this space, but I often do because it's just difficult to unplug from my bank. And the regulations are quite high. Although every time I stop into my bank, it has a little uh, flag that says high value customer, and then they tend to uh, just sell me more product. And, you know, it's like, it, it's like the high value customer flag just simply means load me up with products. I need more credit cards. I need more interest bearing accounts. I need more mortgages. You know, <laughs> it's just the wrong way to think about it. But is that a good way to size up the, the middle group? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's a great one. Um, another example is is some you know there there are companies that actually build oil rigs, right? So mm-hmm. if you're a company that builds an oil rig, you got a lot of regulation, a lot of things that are are, are more or less directing how you might go at a project, and the, the actual pricing involved in that project is going to be negotiated heavily negotiated between your company and the customer. So you can sit back and model customer lifetime value. But at the end of the day, there's going to be a lot of hurdles that are going to get in between that, that estimate and the actual market kind of value that you're going to realize. So those are, you know, utilities might be another one. Mm-hmm. You can say utilities, they pretty much have to operate within whatever um, regulations the, the local governments or the, the state governments set. So they can also model, you know, customer value. But at the end of the day, they've got to work through external types of, of organizations or factors in order to implement it. So I love the banking one. That's it's, it's a great example. And then there's some, a few other ones just to consider. Although I do think there's an interesting twist on banking in that when I've seen membership associations who offer banking services, that is a, a different twist because they have the core nugget of the customer already at the center of everything they do. And they, they tend to think about that person holistically out of the gate by their definition as a membership organization. Would you agree? Yeah, I would say, you know, where where you have, you know, that type of a model where you have a model that, you know, you may have a customer who's cross-shopping, you know, within your within your business um, through either a different division or business unit. I definitely would agree with you on that one that, you know, customer centricity could take root there where it might not take root in a, in a, a larger, um, you know, organization, okay. more complex organization. Okay. What about um, companies like... Uh, Walmart, Costco, people who are making their business on high volume, low price, would you put them in the middle bucket or would you put them in the, um, the third bucket of custom, uh, companies who are right for CLV? Oh, I definitely would put those two in the, in the third bucket. When you have a company like Costco, for example, um, you know, they have a diverse portfolio of customers. Um, and, and when you have diversity, you have what you might call variability in, in how customers are interacting with your, you know, with your offer or with your company. Um, so in Costco's case, um, they might market to certain customer segments differently based on, you know, whether they're a business or a consumer. They might also um, market to customers differently based on um, what their 
particular buying habits have been over the past, say, you know, six months or so. So it's the idea of having a relatively robust or large portfolio of customers. You're managing that relationship with those customers on an ongoing basis, and you're in a position where you can influence them, you know, by and, and, and where you can make small changes over time, you can realize, you know, what you've projected in the future. Um, so those are like the conditions that I would say need to be in play for a company to, to truly realize strong gains from centricity. So let's push on that third bucket a little bit. Um, I imagine that for those companies that are uh, have an established portfolio and a diverse customer base, that they're also vulnerable to smaller competitors coming in and nibbling or taking big bites out of their portfolio. Uh, does that help or hurt? Uh, in terms of adopting customer centricity, I'd say um, that's definitely a catalyst or it's, it's a reason why companies would want to adopt it. We now compete in a global economy and, and what that means is that pretty much everyone is, is gaining access to the same set of customers, and technology is stimulating some tremendous competition. You can, you can encode almost any physical experience today. Uh, in medicine, you know, the Internet's mm-hmm. being used as a form of access, and, and technology is being used as a diagnostic device for, for doctors and medical practitioners. You've got Uber, who's now serious threat, if not a, a challenger in, uh, you know, for taxi drivers. So everywhere you look, you see technology making inroads and, and upsetting, if you will, the competitive balance in, in industries. Um, so I would say that's definitely something that, that should really create a sense of urgency in, um, in adopting something like customer centricity. Yeah, I, I love that. And that was my assumption, too, is it would kind of be the canary in the coal mine. And, and there's the sense of urgency of if you don't act, something's going to happen. But but I love the global perspective that you brought in, because you know, sometimes we tend to think um, in in the market velocities are different. And we tend to think that the U.S. is so far ahead in so many ways. But if you saw the recent Mary Meeker presentation, you know, China, which has been going gangbusters for a while, is not only going gangbusters still, but they're approaching problems in a different way. They're solving for that efficiency, effectiveness, experience in ways that we might not yet think of. So the idea that you know maybe a Tencent or an Alibaba can suddenly become a major player in the U.S. market has been fairly foreign to us, but maybe not so much in the future. Uh, I would completely agree. And, and I, I would say, the opposite is also taking place. So the company that I had talked about earlier, who's, who's more or less a service, uh, you know, a, a service in the um, hosted uh, data space, they're actually acquiring customers in, uh, you know, in um, Thailand, um, across the globe. Um, and you've got, you know, other U.S. companies that are much more notable, like Netflix, who, who's pretty much operating in every mm-hmm. modern city or, or, you know, modern country. Mm-hmm. So I would say that, the story would go both ways. You know, you, you have uh, definitely foreign competitors who can come into the U.S. and, and can claim you know, space, but you also have the opportunity, once you've identified who your ideal customers are, the opportunity to go globally as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, let's, um, you know, if we can, uh, and I don't know how much you can actually talk about staples, but I bet you have a whole bunch of examples. Let's maybe shift gears a little bit and see if there are, um, what, what are the particular ways that you've seen companies be successful by adopting CLV? Is it always the marketing department? Is there, are there some other interesting examples we can talk through? Absolutely. Where centricity takes root, it can be, it can be marketing can also be in an operational setting, um, or it can be something that is um, is a very much a top-down initiative. You know, where a CEO might say to his direct reports, "This is something that's vital for you know for for our future success, and and we're going to champion this you know as a team, and we're going to make this happen." In my case, uh, I've worked with you know divisions, and those divisions are generally being um, managed by, you know, a vice president who is chartered within, with implementing and executing on customer centricity. So I would say it's very much something that would be a top-down initiative, not something that can really come out of, if you will, some type of a, a functional, you know, a functional emphasis. Mm-hmm. But the, um, at the end of the day, um, some of the examples are, um, you know, one, I worked with a company in China for a couple of years and their foray into centricity was really um, something that came out of uh, a change in, in their government's um, policy. So, you know, the, the government had basically closed markets. So this company was a uh, pulp manufacturer and um, and a paper manufacturer. We and, had a lot uh, of those in Oregon. Yeah, that's great. Um, so hopefully someone in Oregon who might be working in one of those firms will pick something up because um, this company actually did some really positive things. The uh, the government had, had closed the market to to protect you know their own industry and and had then also then made a decision to open the market and at that point in time the CEO had hired our firm to come in and, and help their divisions become more competitive so anticipating foreigners would be coming in they wanted to be ready for uh, a change in their market and in this case what what the CEO did was he actually implemented a policy where cross-functional teams were brought together, were taught, you know, the precepts of customer centricity. You know, so it started with how do you analyze data and how do you gather customer information? How do you translate, you know, what you're getting from the customer into operational, you know, KPIs? And then how do you realize the gains, you know, through marketing and through product development, more or less commercialization? So in the early part, we realized that that these individuals were were somewhat new to the concept of centricity and, and customer value. Their mentality was was really about price concession. So mm-hmm. they would more or less take share from from other local competitors by lowering price. So it took them several months to kind of absorb material and start to practice. And uh, within I'd say a year and a half to two years, they were actually developing some very impressive commercialization projects that were very clearly directed towards customers that were, you know, buying in high volumes, ones that that they were realizing substantial net profit from, and ones that they felt would be worthwhile to to hold on to when these foreign competitors came into the market. So in that example, I'd say there were two really neat things that came out of the exercise. You know, one was their ability to, to transfer what they'd learned into commercialization. And two, it was the fact that they started with this cross-functional approach and they were actually able to um, take away 
language barriers where you know where a financial person might need the data translated into financial statements and a, and a product person might need things translated into product specifications and a salesperson might need things translated into um, a value proposition. They were able to actually collectively kind of develop the commercialization project. That type of translation happened naturally as they were doing it. So that was one cool thing. Mm-hmm. I would um, say that that is cool. And it and it really underscores, which I think is the fundamental point, when you do customer centricity, you're really trying to identify those high value customers. But then once you've identified them, what do you do next? How do you, you know, maybe build walls to defend them, to, to keep them happy, to keep innovating? I, I think that's a really interesting area that it, it sounds like at least they were able to not just absorb the concept, but as you said, transfer it into commercialization and then build on the concept and grow from there. Absolutely. I mean, the same story plays out with U.S. companies that we worked with as well. One company was uh, was in commercial space. They were a supplier of construction products. And this is kind of an interesting story. So the division that we worked with was one that actually had a retail as one of its distribution channels. So they, they were actually developing products that could be sold you know, through retailers. And their high-value customer, in this case, were women who were do-it-yourselfers. And they actually developed a product that appealed, that had a special packaging, design, weight, form factor, if you will, that appealed to women do-it-yourselfers. And you know, the only way they would have ever started thinking about that was going back and analyzing who their high-valued customers were in this space. And in this case, it happened to be women who were taking on these home improvement projects. Oh, nice. Was the U.S. company that you mentioned, was it all about retail or was retail one segment of the company? Yeah, it was just one. It was actually one division. Nice. What that says to me is there's a interesting way to break down the information is that when, when we're looking at it from a high value customer perspective, it usually goes across products, across divisions. You, you end up with a much bigger ranking and rating that you can do of opportunities. So I'm picturing this U.S. company you know, running all their high value customers and then seeing what parts of the organization they are dense in and then getting more color around them and then trying to say, well, what's the opportunity here? Do you think that's what most companies do or is it just what more successful companies do? Well, I mean, are we talking in the application of customer centricity or yes. are we talking more general? I would say it's a very straightforward exercise. So you basically start out with, you know, and then this is what, you know, Peter Fader is, has really been pioneering over the past five, 10 years. Um, but really it's, it's, here's the yardstick that we want to use to define what's at stake. Right. And that's the CLV part of it. Mm-hmm. That's what we want to use to discriminate, you know, who it is we want to invest in. We need to have the right financial instruments to make those calls, but we can't continue to, you know, the company can't continue to do things the same way in order to reach the, that future value. Mm-hmm. It has to innovate. So it's taking the CLV and then marrying it up with, you know, innovative ideas that are going to enhance, you know, the, the relationship that customers are going to have with their companies. And that actually works in two ways. 
One way is is with companies who are currently, you know, a part of the portfolio. It obviously it goes a long way to ensuring they're going to be around in the future. But the second way is as you're targeting those new prospects, the ones that you think are going to be your high value customers in the future, you're actually developing this platform that you can now use to direct those relationships in the way that you've envisioned, right? So you're, you're being more deliberate and more predictable, you know, with those relationships. And that is something that I think is, is what can insulate a company who's using customer centricity. They can, they can insulate them a little bit more from, from competitive pressures. Um, they're not as reactive, if you will, to, to like a, a very short-term shift uh, because they know who their high-value customers are, they understand what's at stake, and they're they're willing to kind of stay the course a little bit more to, to realize those returns. Well, and I think what's embedded underneath your comment as well is when they innovate for those newer customers and they have that platform, they're also looking at ways that the value trade can happen back and forth. It, maybe those customers are coming in and making the company better in some way. Uh, an example I saw recently was that Google's searchers make the Google product better because their usage feeds data back to Google about what to what to fix, how to improve. Uh, and, and the specific example in the one I was reading was uh, that they experimented with the number of search results on the page. And the data coming back from users said, we want more information coming back with every search result, you know, more, uh, more hits. But that wasn't actually right. What people wanted was speed. They wanted to get to the answer more quickly. So it just reminded me of that like faster horse comment we always hear about um, Ford, Henry Ford, that gets quoted everywhere. So is there kind of a flywheel effect where these organizations develop not just a customer relationship, but feed off of that customer relationship in a symbiotic fashion? Yeah. And actually, I think you're tapping into something that is a little bit counterintuitive to most people. I would say the, the popular mindset is is doing something like customer centricity is expensive or it's it's something that distracts the business from from serving the customer. The example that you're pointing out is that it's actually an enabler of, of better relationships and um, and and more predictable relationships. And also it opens the door for symbiotic, if you will, or, or, or two-way types of, of, it, of value exchange. Um, when you know who your high-value customers are and you're attuned to what they're doing and you're taking that engagement as a measure of your performance, you have a much more reliable predictor of actually how your business, what your business standing is, if you will, versus competitors. A lot of companies are put a lot of belief in the external research and, and things of that nature. But when you actually can do what you just described, when you can actually take the data or take that engagement and, and use it as a metric of performance, it does create that flywheel effect where you're, you're systematically getting better 
at the things that the customers are valuing most. So now I, I have to credit two different authors who are you know, who have influenced my uh, question behind the scenes as I was you know, talking to you today. One is Brian Eisenberg, who had an episode that just came out recently, and his book is Be Like Amazon, and he talks about the flywheel effect. And the other is Michael Schrage, and he wrote a book, uh, Who Do You Want Your Customers to Become? And his concept is about that value transformation. So I'll put those in the notes for our listeners uh, in case they want to dig into those concepts some more. But thank you for uh, for calling that out. You probably haven't even read either of those books and you already knew it, right? Actually, I had read an article um, that Michael had written for Harvard Business Review. So I was, I was familiar with, with his point of view. Um, I, I was I was actually pleasantly surprised because you know I had the same point of view and and I had come from you know a completely different perspective. But yeah, it, it was nice to hear a, a affirmation that the value exchange is real and takes place. It's You're great. ahead of your time, Jeff. Just ahead of your time. <laughs> what about Both other much. examples? Are there um, maybe one more that you want to share with us? Yeah, I mean, on the note of expense, one of the other things that I've seen is companies who adopt centricity are are actually in a position to work to spread costs if you will or share costs with with partners in the case of think of retailers for example there's a lot of investment that you know key suppliers might make and um I know firsthand that uh, a company who had implemented centricity actually had started getting very very large increases in those key supplier investments. And it was simply because they could, they could rationalize, you know, they could sit down with these people and they could show them the numbers and they could show them how reliable the numbers were. And, and partners like reliability and they like good investments. So in that case, it, it was a win-win. You know, the, the same thing started happening in a uh, financial services organization. Basically, we worked with a company that was one of the largest automotive financing divisions, you know, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And um, when we sat down and we showed them the CLV numbers, it was it was like an epiphany. They real they they began to realize that they were putting bids, which are basically rate quotes and and dealer incentives. You know, they were putting bids into the marketplace for customers that they thought were going to be very reliable in terms of repayment, in terms of you know their their credit score and so much and so on and so forth. But what they didn't realize was there were other customer segments that were larger in terms of you know the total market opportunity that they were not being competitive with and paying a higher, they ultimately were paying more for these customers, but these customers were actually yielding much higher returns. And um, what ended up happening was they went to these dealers and asked for preferential treatment. Um, in other words, they wanted the ability to know when these particular buyers were coming into the dealerships, and they also wanted the ability to have you know, an equal opportunity to kind of put bids in front of them. Um, so it opened the door to a segment of the market that they really didn't have a lot of inroads into. And it was only because they, they realized the, the, the value of these customers that they could sit down and you know, have these discussions. So like I said, I think in some ways it's counterintuitive. People think of it as an operational expense, but on the flip side, it opens your eyes to new market opportunities and new opportunities for uh, partnership and investment that you know, you really, you may not have realized otherwise. That's a, that's a really great pull through. Uh, and, and I think a, a 
a big area we do need to point out because it is oftentimes seen as almost a tactical application and it is so much more it's it's a it's a complete pivot of the organization as you've said it's it's new market new partnerships it, it changes the way you think about everything in your business and that's a good thing it's fun it's so much fun mm-hmm. um a lot of organizations pride themselves on their ability to be nimble. They pride themselves on their ability to, you know, to do a lot and to do a lot quickly. And as centricity starts to take root, you can actually simplify things and you can actually start to spend less time trying to interpret things. Mm-hmm. It becomes a lot easier to understand, you know, what's at stake. You, you have clearer yardsticks of performance you're not as reactive, you know, to short-term bumps. So I'd say it actually, in, in my experience, you know, over the past 18 months, it was a lot of fun. It's very collaborative. There's a lot of innovation that happens. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's really a neat thing. That's great. So let's say that, you know, I've been listening to the show. I'm so excited. I wanted to get this going. What would you recommend that people do to start in the right way or, or perhaps to evaluate whether they're ready for this? It definitely you know, needs to be a top-down initiative. So you, you need sponsorship. So I'd say, the, you know, the first foundational piece is, is to have someone in an executive capacity or someone on a, on a senior leadership team who is sponsoring the view, the initiative. From there, I'd say it's, it's really straightforward. You assess your customer portfolio. You begin to understand the source of the current source of value. And in, in my case, it's always, you know, a net margin or a net profit. And once you begin to do that, you follow that up with a understanding of the, the how. You basically have the what with the segmentation, and then you start analyzing the how, which is uh, how are these customers interacting with us? How often are they interacting with us? How deeply are they engaged with us? Um, are they cross? Are they basically buying across divisions? Whatever the realm or the scope of the relationship is, you, know, you, you have to start to kind of fill those pieces in to help you assess the, what's happening. From there, I'd say it's initiating pilots, and pilots can be done either in acquiring new customers that you think are going to resemble, you know, your best customers today or it can be innovating a new opportunity for those customers to do even more with you. And what I mean by that is simply, you know, the example that I had used earlier where a company had identified that there were women do-it-yourselfers and they weren't getting the right level of support that mm-hmm. they deserved in these projects. And so they, you know, innovated a solution that would help these women to accomplish, you know, their projects faster, more cheaply, and, and, and more easily. So it's that straightforward. And, and that is something that is, is run as a pilot. And then once it starts to prove its merit, you, you can scale it up. You can follow it with more innovation um, exercises, or you can start to transfer centricity you know, to other parts of the business. That's fantastic. That's great. So, Jeff, if people want to get in touch with you, and always I, I 
could go on in our conversation for quite some time, but unfortunately we are restricted to just a, a certain amount of time. And if people want to follow up and ask you questions, is there a particular way that you like them to get in touch? Um, you know, email's best. You know, my email address is um, Jeff, J-E-F-F, at R Insight. So it's just the letter R and the word insight, rinsight.com. And this is something that, you know, I'm particularly passionate about. So I'm happy to answer questions or, um, you know, if someone's struggling with some, some element of customer centricity, I'm happy to help them maybe understand the, the situation a little bit differently. So Absolutely. Great, great. Well, now let's do a, a quick summary. We, we've been talking for a bit, and I, I want to call back to what we talked about at the top of the show, which was there are basically three, or we think there might be three different buckets of companies, and only one of them is really right for customer centricity right now, meaning you know CLV-driven actions. The first bucket of companies that are very new, they're, they've got um, perhaps a a lot of opportunity, but they're in a land grab space is not really the right place to start. The second area where companies have a lot of heavy government regulation, or maybe they're in a third world culture, or they're in spaces where there's a heavy negotiation around pricing, um, places where there are artificial restrictions around the business and the complexity is very high, is also not a great place to start. I think we talked about utilities and oil at this point too. And then the the third place where it is a good place to start is you've got maybe an established portfolio, a, a diversity amongst the customer base, uh, and you're in a relatively large free market space that allows you to acquire customers. And it's precisely because acquiring those customers is fairly open and you know maybe the barriers are maybe lower than the other two groups that this makes it a ripe place for running the calculation calculations and finding those high value customers and those high value customers as you said towards the end of the show that can help you discern what decisions are the right decisions to make it almost reminded me uh, when you said companies like to be fast and making a lot of quick decisions and moving along and executing it almost reminded me of busy work in a way where you, know, you can get a lot of actions done, but are they the right actions? So that beautiful simplicity of this is the right action and this is why is what comes out of that, that third group when you start to execute on CLV. And did I miss anything there so far? No, that you actually summed it up um, very succinctly and, and yeah, very well. Very Good. Nice. Good. And we talked about a couple different examples, the paper company. I won't go into those again, but I do want to pull out what you said about when we look at Pete Fader's model, it's a great yardstick for what to define. But then it's not just helping stick the high value customers, you know, identify them and help them stay. And the secondary effect, which is helping them to, you know, maybe internally you create a platform or systems to help support them. But there's a, a, a follow-on capability here that's not really covered in Fader's work, and that's the whole innovation side. But once you get that lens, the ability to move beyond, and, you know, you've got your systems down, you've got your patterns down, but now... I, 
how can you really be of service to the customer? How can you really think beyond and innovate in your packages and your concepts and different ways to pull information together? And and that's, I think, also where you talked about new markets and partnerships and taking it out through the operational strains of the company. That is part that most people aren't really thinking about today, but is a very powerful application that companies can eventually get to. Yeah, I mean, I feel like in my experience, companies are are trying to do the right thing, right? Everybody is educated to understand their domain, their their expertise, and then they come in and they follow the right procedures and everybody is doing, you know, the things that they believe are going to help the company achieve its goals. I mean, that's the nature of what we do day in, day out. But in many cases, what happens is we reach this point where things become complex. Like we have a lot of programs that we're managing. We have a lot of opportunities that we can think about as next steps. We're sending out a lot of different uh, marketing materials and we're trying to track them all and we're trying to measure the effectiveness of all of them. And the, and the reason that we're doing all of these things and it feels somewhat complex is because we really don't have a true signal through all the noise. So mm-hmm. so we're trying, we compensate with, for that by adding a lot into what we do, which is fine because at the end of the day, if everybody's doing the same thing, then, then we're all okay. Where things start to actually get exciting is where you start to say, wow, I can see that there's this opportunity out there that's really, really important and also very, very tangible. Like I, I can quantify it. I can, I can look at it from different ways. And, and when you have that insight, they achieve tremendous things. And an example that I had shared in a different conversation is a high value customer tends to be five, seven, 10 times as valuable as an average customer. Wow. And so, yeah, so when you're working on projects that are focused on that delta of value and you start launching pilots and realizing the gains from those programs, it doesn't take long for these new projects to start to really add up. And on practical terms, I've seen these programs generate millions of dollars over a period of several months, and these are profitable dollars. These aren't dollars that are you're basically conceding margin in order to win share. Wow. Um, so it, it, it translates into a much clearer path, if you will, from where you are today to kind of where you want to be you know, down the road. You can still be complex. You can still do all those other things. But this just gives you a sense of, of knowing <laughs> that you're on the right path or that, that you're directing everything to the right goals. The signal and the noise, right? I think that's your term. I think I might have picked up your term. <laughs> I always think about it that way. Well, this has been wonderful, Jeff. You know, I, I've just so enjoyed talking to you, as always. Um, links, of course, to everything we discussed are at ambitiondata.com slash podcast. Jeff, thank you for taking the time and walking us through these ideas and these far-ranging applications that are well beyond the everyday thinking. Oh, you're welcome, Allison. Thanks for the opportunity to share the podcast with you. Remember, everyone, when you use your data effectively, you can build customer equity. It is not magic. It's just a very specific journey that you can follow to get results. Thank you for joining today's show. This is Allison. Just a few things before you head out. Every Friday, I put together a short 
bulleted list of three to five things I've seen that represent customer equity signal, not noise. And believe me, there's a lot of noise out there. I actually call this email the signal. Things I include could be smart tools I've run across, articles I've shared, cool statistics, or people and companies I think are doing amazing work building customer equity. If you'd like to receive this nugget of goodness each week, you can sign up at ambitiondata.com and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoy the signal. See you next week on the Customer Equity Accelerator.